0: Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. Part of a 50-plus year endeavor to prepare pastors and other church leaders in a biblically and confessionally faithful way for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I am the president and associate professor of Old Testament here at RTS Washington. And I'm joined by Dr. Peter Lee, associate professor of Old Testament and dean of students at RTS. Hi, Peter.
1: Hi, Scott. Good to be with you again. Good to
0: have you. I'm also joined by Dr. Tommy Keene, Associate Professor of New Testament and Academic Dean at RTS. Hi, Tommy. Hi, good morning. Joined also by Dr. Paul Jean, Lecturer in New Testament at RTS and Senior Pastor at New City Presbyterian Church here in Vienna, Virginia. Hi, Paul. Good morning, friends. Hey, we have a special treat today that we get to introduce the latest announced... Assistant Professor of Systematic Theology, Gray Sutanto, who's on with us as well. Hey, Gray.
2: Hey, glad to be here.
0: Great, great, great to have you. Uh, Gray will start his position June 1 at RTS, but he's right now in Jakarta, Indonesia, like everyone else in the world, social distancing. Gray, how are things going over there in Jakarta? Can you tell us a little bit about what the scene is like in your life right now?
2: Things are going all right. Um, things are really quiet here in Jakarta. Of course, we've been staying home for the past three to four weeks. I've uh, been getting caught up with um, some online teaching and also some writing and grading, of course. Um, but things have been okay. Um, there's a really great uh, delivery service here called Gojek. It's basically guys on, on Mopass to go around the city and you could order food and groceries online and it's been it's been all right for us because of that. And um, so we've been staying home, uh, staying healthy, keeping busy, it's been okay.
0: That's great. Now you're, you're there, you're at your house with Indita, your wife. That's right, yes. Well, you all have been married, you got married last summer, is that correct?
2: That's exactly right, yep.
0: Now how are, how are things going? You're also a pastor, can you tell us a little bit about how things are going with the church and the ministry that you're involved in there?
2: Yeah, so we started doing online services. Uh, I think March fifteenth was our first service where um, I had to uh, preach for the first time just in front of a camera and a video crew. Um, it was a bit surreal to see the empty seats there, of course, and it was pretty unprecedented. I think you know you were mentioning in the early podcast how a lot of our theological instincts have been reversed because of the coronavirus, because we want to gather as a community and a church, but you know it was a tough decision for us. We've been monitoring the situation since probably about late February. And so about two weeks in, the government started to issue public recommendations for social distancing. They couldn't make it a law or uh, make a stronger announcement rather than just a stern recommendation because just too many people in Jakarta with you know um, single day uh, wages. Uh, their lives are dependent upon just working that particular day, so they couldn't uh, um, they couldn't just say don't go to work because a lot of people just depended upon the, these wages. So, um, but because of that strong recommendation, we thought as a church that it would be faithful to, to meet just online over Zoom, And, um, um, we've been doing online services since then. And, um, for three weeks we recorded the sanctuary, but then the last, I think two or three weeks we've been recording just in our own homes. Um, and, and interestingly enough, it's fostered, I think a greater sense of unity as well, because, um, Oddly enough, Jakarta is a city with incredibly bad traffic usually, and uh, weekly meetings happen with incredible uh, um, difficulty and hardship, and just getting across town with the the traffic it's really hard. But because of Zoom and the technology that we have available for us, we we're, we've been able to meet uh, a bit more and more regularly as well. So it's, it's it's an odd thing. We're we're going we're getting by.
0: You mentioned actually before we started, you were talking about how this is one of the first times you've been able to see blue skies over Jakarta.
2: Yeah, normally uh, because of the traffic, all we see is just a gray smog and I keep thinking it's probably gonna rain today, but it's not gonna rain. It's just really bad pollution above me. Um, but yeah, and right now it's blue skies over Jakarta. It's amazing.
0: I wonder, that's interesting, I wonder how things, how that's affecting places like LA or I used to teach in Shanghai, you know, I, I was noticing the other day my wife and I were out on a walk and we turned a corner onto our street and there were just rows and rows of families walking down the street, you know, all trying to do big loops around each other. And I just realized that's not something I've ever seen before as large groups of families kind of roving the neighborhood yeah. um, and walking through empty streets. You know, it, it's some of the sights that come from this uh, this, this whole situation are kind of surprising.
2: Yeah, a common sight you would see in Jakarta would be families of three or four on a single motorcycle or a single moped even. So um, not a sight you could see anywhere else. I think you could probably find little videos on on documentaries on YouTube or something. But that's something to behold.
0: Yeah, I like that idea though of commuting in on a moped with my five daughters.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm surprised that there are so few accidents that you actually see on the road in Jakarta because you would think that these people are just going to get hit any moment and every time but no they they just get a lot they get around you know they swerve in and out so smoothly really skilled drivers yeah hey
0: so tell us a little bit you are an assistant professor of systematic theology elect as it were tell us a little bit about how you came to this discipline of systematic theology
2: yeah thanks um i started out at, at biola university in my undergraduate program as a philosophy major actually and it was a program that was heavily leaning towards analytic philosophy. And I think ever since then I've loved analytic philosophy, loved the rigor and the clarity that analytic philosophy had offered. But I remember um, you know, just, just becoming a recent convert and entering Biola at the time and doing these philosophy courses, even though I loved the logical clarity and the rigor, I found that a lot of my philosophy professors actually leaned towards a kind of Arminianism in their theological understanding. So they thought that basically they argued that you know, because of our philosophical instincts, um, God had given us libertarian free will. And so God is not sovereign over the choices that we make. And that was an interesting thing to me because when we were taking our Bible minors at Biola, um, most of our biblical studies professors who are actually in the Reformed tradition, they argued that God was sovereign over our choices, and even though yes, it's a mystery, the Bible demands that we uphold both God's sovereignty and human responsibility in a in a compatibilist way. So I just started to get really curious about this. Why was it that most of my philosophy uh, professors and friends were leaning towards the Armenian tradition? Uh, Why is it that most of my biblical studies professors were leaning towards a more Calvinistic position? And so um, after about, I think, a semester or a year, I decided to do the double major and really started to love um, systematic theology because of working in biblical studies on the one hand and philosophy on the other, seeing what are the, you know, theological, metaphysical implications of the biblical text. That interest led me to studies in seminary, um, and I went to a Westminster Seminary and uh, further delved into the Reformed tradition there and just, again, fell in love with systematic theology through my studies there, reading especially figures like Francis Tiriton and, of course, Herman Boving. Uh, I ended up doing my PhD studies in Herman Bobbing, but that wasn't actually going to be the case. I, I wanted to do my PhD studies in the theological interpretation of scripture at first, and maybe even some studies in Bart and uh, the relation between Karl Barthes and theological hermeneutics. But it was actually over a few conversations with Karl Truman, who firmly dissuaded me from that and, and, and started to direct me towards Bobbing studies. And it just kind of went off from there.
3: What exactly did um, Karl say? I'm surprised he didn't direct you towards John Owen, given his background, or even more. Yeah,
2: than- uh, that's a really great question. Um, let me try to recall what he said. I think Probably a couple of things. Uh, first, uh, Bardian Studies is just such a crowded field. So that's more of the pragmatic argument for it. Um, you know, there, everybody's saying something about called already. You need something that's, that's really fresh and um, an exciting field is emerging. And that's Bobbing Studies. And he was just saying how in Herman Bobbing, you have a faithful transmission of Reformed theology. And I think at the time I was going to his church, they were reading Our Reasonable Faith at his church. Um, which has become, of course, our The Wonderful Works of God, which is published by Westminster Seminary Press. And um, so I remember reading Bavink and started to really fall in love with this theologian because in Bavink, you see this, yes, rigor and also faithfulness to biblical text, uh, a faithful transmission of Orthodox Reformed theology, but at the same time, this desire— to speak into the modern age in a way that shows that Christianity actually fulfills the longings of the human heart. And that was incredibly attractive to me. But I remember just Carl um, redirecting me towards Bobbing for both pragmatic and I think theological reasons away from my initial plan.
4: Gray, I'm just a lowly New Testament professor. Uh, So can you define for me analytic philosophy theological interpretation of scripture and what
2: where where does Boving fit on that kind of on that map yeah uh, that's a great question Um, analytic philosophy broadly construed and I mean there are probably different definitions of it but broadly construed it's just the effort to um, answer the big questions of philosophy you know um, metaphysics the study of being epistemology the study of knowing ethics the studies of Um, goodness and justice, in a logically parsimonious way. Um, They really privilege logical clarity and parsimony over uh, anything else. So instead of trying to make arguments that are unclear, we would want to try to make arguments that have clear premises and conclusions tethered to those premises. So uh, it's a style of doing philosophy. It's 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 a method, I think, above all else. And so in terms of analytic theology, it's just a way of doing theology that is uh, striving to be clear. So that's probably the broadest way to, to do that, to define that. Um, theological interpretation is just the idea that you read the Bible as God's word, right? Which is incredibly non-controversial for us uh, Christians, of course, in the church. Uh, the Bible is God's word, but you have to read it as God's word that the Old Testament and the New Testament form a single book, that these 66 books is actually one canonical whole. This is not, you know, a collection of merely human texts like any other human text, but you got to read it as the speech of God to the people of God. So um, I think I think Bavinck doesn't feed neatly into either of these categories, but um, Bavinck, I think, shows us, you know, in his desire to communicate systematic theology for his own day, you can see his pattern even in his dogmatics, uh, this, this structure of his presentation of beginning with the biblical text, then outlining how that text has been received in church history in a very clear way, and then finally presenting that uh, theology in his own day in a, in a, in a uh, contemporary articulation of that dogmatic theology. So you see this self consciousness in Bobbing to root himself not only in the biblical text, but also in church history and then to present it in the zone day in the clearest way possible. So you see that emphasis in Bovink.
0: You know, you mentioned to us, um, when you were actually on campus back in January, the fact that Herman Bovink had a poster of Abraham Kuyper hanging on his wall when he was growing up. Is that right? Am I remembering that correctly?
2: Yeah, he did.
4: Um,
0: do you have a poster of Herman Bovink hanging on your wall?
2: I don't, but I do have a friend who has tattooed Herman Bobbing on his leg, which is amazing.
0: Uh, okay, that's more commitment right there. That is definitely more commitment.
2: I don't know, Gray. I, you're just
1: uh, not showing the commitment, I guess. <laughs> no.
2: Uh, he better not change his mind on Reformed theology. That's what I keep telling him. So, hey, Gray, I have a question.
1: First, uh, uh, I have to say, uh, I'm, I am so excited to to know that we're going to have you here in DC Uh, ever since we met and and had chance to, uh, to hear your presentation when you visited, to read uh, uh, some of your stuff. Um, You know, we did some of our due diligence heard some uh, podcasts that you were on here and there. Uh, I thought this guy's great. And, and I really was prayerful, hopeful that this is going to work out. So I'm very thankful uh, to the Lord that you're going to be here with us. I'm very excited about our future and how we can all, uh, work together in our areas of discipline. And um, so I, I just wanted to share that with you in, in terms of our just, uh, and I'm sure, you know, the rest of the faculty here, I'm sure, uh, uh, would agree with this. But, uh, but uh, on a personal level, just really excited uh, to have you here with us. Uh, our uh, previous uh, systematic theologian had a beloved uh, uh, passion for Bavink as well. And so to know that uh, someone in his uh, system of thought uh, is going to be his replacement is particularly very special and very meaningful uh, for, for all of us. With that, uh, I'm curious, Gray, I guess more of a, a quasi-historic question perhaps is, um, I remember when I was in seminary um, you know, relatively not too long ago, uh, you know, at that time, boving's Reformed uh, Dogmatics was not available, uh, but there was this uh, one volume Doctrine of God uh, that mm-hmm. was available. And uh, I, I did uh, have some assignments from that, which I really appreciated and really valued. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I didn't even realize who Bovink was or, or, the, or the contribution that he had made. I had no idea. I didn't even know about his Reformed Dogmatics.
2: I guess my question is, uh, what took us so long? That's a great question. I think definitely you've uh, mentioned the, the problem of translation for one. I mean, uh, Boving was just recently translated. His dogmatics uh, were coming out between, I think, the years 2003 to 2008. That's incredibly recent. And before that, all of his works are, again, in the Dutch, and only a few selections of texts were really translated into the English. And even, you know, perhaps his more famous partner was Abraham Kuiper, at least until now. You know, he, he, Kuiper, too, was. Largely untranslated, even until today, we're still translating major portions of Kuiper's works. The Acton Institute with Lexham Press—they're doing good work and translating Kuiper. You have two volumes of Common Grace now coming out, and with Kuiper on education, on Islam. Um, so, so much of Kuiper himself has been untranslated, and so much of bobbing um, hasn't been translated until the dogmatics were. And I think that really confirmed. Um, I think for a long time, we had this mythological Bobbing, right? We know that Berkhoff was reading a lot of Bobbing. We know that Piper was working closely with Bobbing. We know that Voss was friends with Bobbing. So there's this mythological Bobbing. This guy must be great, right? But we haven't really read him. We've only heard about him from secondary sources and people who are using him and who are praising him. I was just reading Birkhauer recently and he uses a lot of Bobbing, but Berkhoff was translated way before Bobbing was translated. So, finally, getting the Reform dogmatics translated and, and therefore allowing English readers to, to access Bobbing for the first time, that was just massive. And John Bold is to be credited for that at, at Calvin Seminary. Um, and then after that, I think um, soon there was another thing that, that that happened in the scholarship. For a long time, there was this uh, thesis about Bobbing that there were actually two Bobbings rather than one Bobbing. Um, this idea that Baving is a man conflicted with himself that he's a really schizophrenic kind of figure uh, caught between his orthodox scholastic side and his uh, liberal side uh, or or modern side and this two Baving thesis really um, held captive and stunted um, theological work to be done on Baving himself because people were encouraged to pick well, which side of Bobbing do you want to endorse and which side do you want to reject rather than seeing the unity of Bobbing's thought and what he was trying to do in his own historical context. So I think you know, the work of Brian Madsen and James Eglinton, uh, they wrote uh, you know, two PhD dissertations kind of back-to-back. Uh, James, uh, who was my PhD supervisor, did his work in the University of Edinburgh and Brian did his in the University of Aberdeen. And they basically... Uh, um, tackle that issue were there two bobbings and, and if there is only one uh um, what is the unity of his thoughts how is his thought coherent as a whole and so now i think we're just starting to recognize that he is very much a unified thinker that he's not a conflicted person that he really did stand on classical scholastic reform orthodoxy uh, he edited the Leiden synopsis, yeah, he was very much um, interested in retrieving the 17th century scholastics on his own day, but at the same time, these modern uh, his modern context um, allowed him to critically engage with that context in a way that also incorporated some of their ideas, never uncritically, of course, but but so there's a unity that we're seeing in Bogdan's thought, and that unity, I think, is incredibly attractive. How do we remain in our reform orthodox commitments and yet stay engaged in the modern day. I think that's incredibly attractive. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why Bobbing studies is, is, I think, gaining a kind of resurgence today. Because that's a question that I think uh, Christianity as a whole faces and Reformed theologians as a whole has to face. How do we stay faithful in our theological confessional commitments and at the same time communicate to a changing world? And Bobbing is a great example to that.
0: You talked about this a good bit in the lecture the excellent lecture that you gave at RTS back in January, but the backgrounds to Bob Vink's, um, you know, worldview work. And I thought this part was particularly fascinating. His use of, or his engagement with modernism, um, not only in in critiquing it and offering, Mm -hmm. offering theological critique and philosophical critique, but also in showing what's valuable about it and trying to, engage not just modernism but the scientific um, you know, method the scientific modality of modernism with christianity even offer resources that the christian can offer the scientist that we uh, we might miss particularly i mean it's become you know just a, a trope that doesn't need to be explained in modern discourse today where we talk about the conflict between faith and science and that kind of thing, and Bavinck didn't see
2: it that way, did he? Yeah, that's something that I try to bring out in that lecture, and this really does come out in his Christian worldview lecture, because we have to remember, again, that Bavinck was facing a lot of modern and public intellectual movements that sought to remove theology from the university. Basically, the argument was that theology belonged in the seminary, Um, theology belonged to your private life, it's good for your moral life, but it shouldn 't play a role in the public intellectual life, and so Bovin was definitely interested to show how Christianity should remain in a redefined way, maybe the queen of the sciences that philosophy and and theology um, done under the conditions of revelation um, is useful not only to drawing us for drawing us to God, yes, of course, but also to the other sciences that these insights generated by um, uh, unbelieving scholarship is actually more at home when you're doing them from Christian principles. And that's what Bob was trying to do. Um, and so when he faced the unbelieving sciences of his day or the, the, the empirical findings or the philosophies of his day, you'd rarely see Bobbing, uh simply saying that, you know, Christianity rejects these insights. He wants to show how actually Christianity can help fulfill these insights, that these insights uh, um, fit better under Christian principles and in the Christian university, you know, he was very involved with what Kyber was doing in the Free University of Amsterdam. Uh, we can therefore develop uh, scholarship um, with our Reformed Confession intact.
3: Uh, great. I, I had sort of a random question about Bobink. Whenever I read Bobink, I'm struck by how well he writes, um, mm. the fluidity and a clarity in his writing.
2: I think James Eglinton's new critical biography on Bavinck, um, coming out of Beaker Academic, will make clear a lot of the intellectual influences behind him and his upbringing um, that allows him for that kind of clarity. Um, I mean, Boven grew up uh, within um, the secession tradition uh, of, of the reformed churches in the Netherlands, and he, his, his father was a pastor, um, definitely engaged in uh, academics and academics, but also at the same time, preaching as a pastor. And so Bobbing had always uh, understood that theology belonged within the academy and uh, was meant to be communicated for the church. He's always, I think, grown up with this understanding that you should never segregate the life of the head and the life of the heart. I think he learned that from his father. He also learned that in his theological studies, not only at Compton, but also at Leiden University. Um, In Leiden University, at the time where Bobbing was uh, studying, he was studying under Uh, a lot of the modern theologians were the emerging superstars of Dutch uh, theology at the time. And um, his supervisors uh, were also um, influential in his life, not so much uh, theologically or substantially in a way that Bobbin simply replicated their ideas, but I think Bobbin was forced to articulate his ideas in a more clear way in an unbelieving context. And of course, he was also a pastor for several years after his PhD studies um, actually, in, in Eglinton's biography, you, you'll get glimpses of his life as a pastor and how he was struggling with singleness at the time of his first pastor position and, and how he navigated both the academy and the church uh, basically all of his life. And I think that helped him to become incredibly clear. Um, so I think, you know, his, his deep reading of, of the Bible, his deep reading of uh, classical Reformed theology, and also his constant engagement with... Uh, the unbelieving thought life of his day, and also uh, his 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 life as a pastor, I think that helped him communicate clearly.
3: Yeah, that's really helpful. You know, I wonder if that's also shaped you because you're both a pastor and a scholar. But yeah, that really does come out about Bavink. Like you, you get the sense that when he writes, he has a broad audience in mind. He's not just to yes. you know believers, but he's re- you know if I could say this. Like he's almost like Tim Keller in the sense that you can tell Tim Keller speaks so often with non-Christians, unbelievers. Mm-hmm. And so that quality and his pastoral, you might say, bent really come out, you know? So yeah, thanks for sharing that. That's helpful.
2: And your
0: most recent publication, which I think is adapted from your dissertation, is that right, Gray?
2: Substantially yeah. modified, but yeah.
0: Okay. God yeah. and God and knowledge. You start with... An interesting story, actually, from Bob Inks' um, Bob Inks public life, and it reminded me of how public of a the theologian he was, alongside Kuiper, and that that must have influenced the way that he was writing and the audience that he is imagining as he's writing, because he knows that he's not just writing to an, you know, a Christian enclave or something like that, but he's writing as as a public theologian.
2: Yeah, he's definitely writing as a public theologian. He was traveling. And speaking at student associations, you know, the papers were covering his work, he was speaking in parliament, um, he was he was speaking into issues of women's suffrage, for example, um, uh, woman voting rights, uh, issues of, of even even issues that, that you would think doesn't really belong in theology, he was speaking into like pedagogy or uh, psychology. Um, so he was very much interested in, in all these public issues and I think he definitely drew a national interest to his work I think that's one dimension that hasn't really been brought out in perhaps the popular anglophone imagination of who boving was i think people did see him as a as a theologian people saw him as a pastor but he was very active publicly and, and paul said that he was writing with such a broad audience in mind and that's definitely true um just beginning to reread and and translate parts of his uh book uh christian science oh, science means this dutch word is but basically it just means scholarship or the the critical study of a particular discipline, and he's writing in this book how a Christian faith can actually impact all the different disciplines. And he started out that book by citing, you know, a lot of the uh, uh, modern theologians who were saying and the modern public figures who were saying things like, "We cannot ignore what the Christian faith is doing in the Netherlands in these days and these times." So he's very cognizant of how his work would be received uh, in the public era. And public area, and uh, definitely a broad audience in mind.
0: That's you know, a campus like RTS Washington. We're we're in a place where there's a lot of ideas being discussed. Washington is in some way, sort of a you know an intellectual, conceptual, philosophical capital as much as it's a political capital, which is why some people refer to Washington as Hollywood for ugly people. Um, (laughs) But uh, with that said, you know this idea of public theology there's a there's a real desire i think for public theological discourse in the washington area as i think there is around the world um but you know in dc you really feel it because there's also such a lack of it there, there's this tendency to take whatever a person's viewpoint is and baptize it with some bible verses you know some mm-hmm. kind of randomly distributed proof text um, So I'm very interested in that idea of Bavinck as the public theologian. It would be interesting to pursue that in the years ahead, particularly as we're training pastors and church leaders who are going to go back into public discourse. And then some are going to go into the pastorate. We're going to be training people who are writing for newspapers and working for State Department and up on the Hill. And it'll be interesting to see. I'm very interested in this inquiry as how does Bavinck connect his deep well of reform theology to practical application of uh, you know, public vocations.
2: Yeah, that's definitely a question and a dimension Bobbing's theology that needs to be pursued. And um, yeah, he the first work that comes to my mind is his 1908 Stone Lectures, for example, that he delivered at Princeton Seminary. Um, I think Ten years after Kuiper's Future of Calvinism, not Future of Calvinism, lectures on Calvinism. Future of Calvinism is another Bobbing work. Um, lectures on Calvinism I think was 1898 Bobbing Stone lectures was 1908 at Princeton and he's, he's got a couple of chapters in there on revelation and the future and revelation and culture and he tried to make the case uh, you see some of this in his Christian worldview text that, that Christianity can ha- has resources that, that helps see that in the diversity of the nations that we see around the world there's a greater unifying humanity underlying all of these things and if you take away Christianity, what you get is this German nationalism that arose uh, that you saw in, in the German socialist movement. Well, that, that probably anticipated that, that German movement and uh, mm-hmm. in, in a lot of the German philosophies of his day. And basically, he's, he's trying to show that if you take away Christianity, you'll have this understanding that value and goodness is derived from you yourself. And not just you yourself, your community. And you're going to start using yourself and your community as the barometer or the standard by which you judge other people groups. And you saw that in, in, in Germany because they started to, what Bhagavad would argue, was get rid of uh, the word of God and revelation as the foundation from which they began. So I think the first starting point that Bhagavad would want to say is we have to attend to the word of God that God's word determines the project of public public theology and that we shouldn't just project our own agendas, our own people group, our own nation's instincts toward that, that theological um, um, will of God. We need to stand revelation to know that.
0: He was, he was somewhat predictive on that, wasn't he? In terms of particularly some of the movements that were going on in Germany about people during, in his day, you know, a party that, you know, projecting its sort of tribal concerns on, right. on everyone else, right?
2: Yes. He was citing a lot of these German philosophers were saying things like, uh, the German spirit shall heal the world, or even claiming that Jesus came as an Aryan rather than as a Jewish man. Um, and, and so he basically argued in place of that, what we see in the Bible is a kingdom of God which sees that the human race is so full and so rich that it cannot be encompassed by a single ethnicity or a single people group. Um, that the kingdom of God is a diversity of different nationalities coming together under the unity of their new covenant federal head in Christ. And so he says that we're not going to therefore erase real cultural ethnic differences, but we're going to see a greater unity underlying these things. And coming back to your, your comments, Scott, about how uh, Bobbing wanted to show how, how Christianity helped the other sciences. That's also his view of the university, that if you take away Christianity, you have all these different departments and you really don't have a university. You don't have a, a unity underlying the diversity of academic fields. You just have an atomistic account of, of the sciences rather than an organic account of the sciences. And that's, that was his argument for that as well.
4: Ray, you mentioned
2: uh, the
4: emphasis on the word of God and and it's been a, you know, a theme throughout kind of our conversation. And it's one of the things I've really appreciated about Bob Inc. When, you know, in, in my seminary studies, kind of Bob Inc. came coming across the desk, I think actually through doctrine of God that Peter mentioned earlier um, was that he engaged those kinds of cultural uh, questions, practical questions, um, but also, he had that philosophical background, and so he's mapping a lot of those questions on classic philosophical categories. But he did it all in a way that you really sense that the, God's word was the foundation of his thought, and he was exegetically sophisticated. Um, so, uh, you know, as Scott mentioned, it wasn't just kind of a proof texting approach to his his yeah. the answers to his questions, but he did that kind of meaty exegetical. Uh, work both in the Old and the New Testament, informed by a biblical theological understanding. So, it, it, you know, that was very attractive to me. Um, you know, and particularly now as a New Testament scholar, one of the things that motivates going back to Bobbing in trying to kind of answer contemporary questions and 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 understand the Scripture better is his robust exegetical methodology. Any um, mm-hmm. thoughts on that? His, his, his where, where does where does he get that um, those skill that skill
1: set?
2: Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, well, I think a lot of it has to do, of course, with his education. He was he was studying the, ling- the he, he had a really rigorous uh, study in the languages when he was going to Leiden. Um, not just Greek and Hebrew, but I think he would get uh, not just Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, but also. Uh, um, a lot of the other ancient languages that perhaps that, that you know, a lot of seminarians would, would be stretched if he would demand them to take these now, you know, and he was also learning not just the original Greek and Hebrew of the biblical text, but he was also learning German, French, English, Latin, of course, that, that was his bread and butter. So you see this in his dogmatics, just a keen awareness of how the language is, is useful for him in his scholarly work. So he was engaging with historical biblical criticism and learning from the German scholars on this issue, um, reading it in their primary original languages. And also he was learning from um, the authors that came from the Anglophone world world, and and learning from the French, French, French philosophers and the French exegetes. So you see the sense that he wanted to go back to the sources, not only in the biblical text, but also in the scholarship that he was engaging, that was engaging with the biblical text. Uh, He wasn't just limited to his own Dutch context, but he was reading uh, the Edge scholarship and all of the other different neighboring countries. Um, So I think that's incredibly uh, useful for us to think about. Um, I think a lot of times when we are, you know, in seminary, we just want to focus on our work and and just being limited to our own uh, context and just focusing on what's in front of us. But I think Bavin always understood that scholarship is a, a global thing even in the 19th to 20th century, he understood that, hey, we have to be reading outside of our own context so that we can learn uh, what's out there and also so that we can learn the biblical text better. Hey, Gray, if I could, uh, uh,
1: I don't know if it's sacrilege to ask questions non Bovink, but I'll dare to do so here. Um, <laughs> and uh, Only because, uh, well, I guess, you know, during my seminary days, as I mentioned, Bovink wasn't available um, uh, in addition to Bovink, has there been any, any other um, uh, and you can't say Calvin, okay because I know that, uh, but in addition to Bovink in addition to Calvin, has there been any other theologian that has really made an impact on you? And I guess pragmatically speaking, uh, you know who else would you assign as a required reading, for example, in addition to Bovink in some of the classes that you'll be teaching for us? And you can't say uh, Calvin again. I'm assuming that you're going to say Calvin, so.
2: Yeah. Uh, Francis Tirithen would be my first go in terms of a systematic theological text that I would definitely assign on almost any class. I think he is so widely available, but also underused, interestingly enough. you know, he, um, Peter van Maastricht just got released, and everybody's you know citing him and living him. But I think Francis Tirithen's been around for so long. Uh, that people just kind of overlook it. Um, I think he's so useful and he's incredibly, actually, I think I want to argue pastoral. You see these glimmers of pastoral wisdom in Turitan that you might not expect in, you know, in a scholastic text, people caricature the scholastics as dry or arid, um, which I just don't believe. You know, I think Tiriton, for example, here argues in one place that predestination isn't supposed to be helpful for you pastorally in how to decide in the present for the future. But predestination helps you look at the past to see the goodness of God and how God's goodness has led you up to the present. And that's just so insightful. I think, you know, a lot of uh, perhaps cage-stage Calvinists love to talk about predestination. And, you know, that actually befuddles a lot of the congregants. They say, well, okay, if God predestined everything, then, you know, how do I live my life? How do I make choices now for the future? And Tureton's answer just always is repeated in my head. You know, Tureton says, predestination, hey, that helps you for the past and not for the present or the future. And that's just so insightful. So I think Tirithen would be my, my first go-to in terms of, other than Bobbing the Systematic Theological Texts, his, his Institutes of lentic Theology would be, would be my first choice.
3: Okay, I had a um, personal question as well. <clears throat> um, there, there are some circles, uh, at least here in the States, where uh, there's a movement towards, you might say, Asian theology, Asian theologians, uh, developing a kind of unique uh, ethnic theology and so forth. Um, you know, being Asian myself, I I actually do not identify with that movement. And I don't, I don't mean that positively or negatively. I just don't think in those terms, right? But, you know, given you are a rising star, which, you know, we're glad to have you. Do you feel any pressure and or attraction to Uh, identify yourself as an Asian American theologian. This is something I'm just very curious about. Yeah, For me personally, because the thought has never really crossed my mind. Um, And so I just was wondering if you had any thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, On the one hand, I want to say something like, hey, truth is eternal and unchanging. And it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, what your culture is. You have access to this truth because God has revealed himself in both general and special revelation, and God is a luminous church, so no matter what ethnicity you come from, you can know the truth. Uh, The truth is independent of who you are. Um, Yet, on the other hand, I recognize that uh, we are historical embodied beings, and so we might have insights, instincts, and questions that might be unique to our culture, that might be informing us from our own Uh, our upbringing and things like that. So I don't want to dismiss that particular dimension. Um, So uh, do I feel pressure to identify myself with um, an Asian kind of theology or as an Indonesian theologian? Not too much, probably, at this point. But at the same time, I do want to recognize that it is important uh, to see that theology is a universal subject because the the people of God are a universal people. And so um, we should see and we should want to see that theology is being engaged with by by a multiplicity of, of, of ethnicities, cultures, and so on. So, in that respect, I definitely want to preserve that.
0: The language that you were using when you were talking about Bobbing doing cross-cultural, sort of a, a cross-cultural analysis or, or or value of Christianity across many cultures and and tribal value systems and that kind of thing, it was interesting. You were talking about the the richness of the varieties and the diversity and also the unity within that. And I thought that was a really interesting way of talking about it. It's not that there's a, a bleaching of all cultural entrapment, and yet there's this recogni- recognition that across cultural contexts, there's this unifying aspect of truth. Mm. Is, is, that, is that a proper recollection of how you were describing how Bobbing <laughs> thought yeah, about yeah, that? Definitely.
2: Yeah, definitely. I, I think Bavinck was incredibly sensitive about how, you know, your culture, your nationality, could definitely shape uh, your perception of things and even your conscience. But of course, at the same time, Bavinck would argue that we are living in the theater of God's revelation, to use a phrase from Calvin that that Bavink uses all the time as well. That um, God has not left Himself without a witness. That God has revealed Himself in our hearts and also in 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 nature and Scripture, and so we. We can know this truth. And also, uh, all of human beings, we are all created in God's image. And mm. so uh, when God's, uh, to speak in, in theological terms, when God's special revelation meets what well, we know in general revelation, there's there's nothing in the human heart that wouldn't recognize that. Of course, we might suppress it, yeah. but that would resonate with us naturally.
0: I, I'm thinking a lot about this because in... In, in in another space right now i'm also teaching a christ culture and contextualization course with two other professors and so we're thinking a lot about how to talk about this you know what's the right kind of language and, 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 and analogy to use as we're talking about the gospel and its cross-cultural impact where the gospel can, can be communicated I mean, first and foremost, as it's being communicated to us ourselves, there's a cross-cultural work happening, right? The gospels articulated in a very different cultural context, you know, mm-hmm. and yet how it can be communicated in a way that doesn't flatten all cultural distinction. And yet yeah. at the same time, it's truth across the board. Jesus is the son of God, regardless of where you live in your cultural entrapment.
2: Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's helpful. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, we had a, um, In the city, a guest speaker uh, who was very good, uh, a very good pastor, a very good reformed uh, pastor was coming. But, you know, he came from a Western background and he spoke the gospel. But his emphasis was very much on Christian discipline, uh, which I completely agree with. Of course, as a Christian, to pursue sanctification, you need to pursue disciplines. But there was such an emphasis on that that I think was probably vitally necessary where he came from in in the context of the West. But here in Asia and in the context of Indonesia, where um, um, we believe very much so in moral absolutes and moral values, and we have this deep sense of duty and deep sense of honor and shame, um, to emphasize that Christianity is, is all about good Christian discipline, I think, could fall flat in that kind of year. Because I think um, there's just a different need, different context.
0: Great. We look forward to having you here on campus next semester thanks everybody for joining us for this episode of the faculty podcast and we will see you next week
1: dr red and and paul and uh, know this who've been church planters to a certain even you know tommy who hasn't but you know still pastoring knows that uh it's a subset you know, you of really... the
0: real pastor distinction there's real pastors and then there's those who first planted and those who really haven't had that experience
1: right right exactly um have apologize
0: so... to you gray you're coming in on an inside joke in which no uh, i get it okay. i
2: heard you're the podcast, and the real pastor thing has become yeah, a yeah, the okay. real pastor
0: yeah. distinction is
2: uh, <laughs> is an important <laughs> one the new, in these circles. That should be the new title of the podcast, not real pastors. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> you may have made your first major contribution to the <laughs> faculty.
1: Now. Well, well yeah. we, no, we can't do that. then that, that rules Paul out, though, because he's the only yeah. real yeah, pastor Paul's amongst us. Because he is a real pastor. That's How right. about
0: one real pastor?